I'm Julia McFarlane, co-host of the One Decision podcast. We're coming up on a significant milestone. It's our one-year anniversary of bringing you in-depth analysis of the critical decisions shaping our world. To celebrate the occasion, co-host and former head of MI6, Sir Richard Dearlove, and myself, will answer questions submitted by you, the listeners. Spies are usually pretty tight-lipped, so don't miss the chance to write in. Your question might even make it onto the podcast. For more information, head over to OneDecisionPodcast.com. You're listening to One Decision. I'm your host, Julia McFarlane. Earlier this year, Ukrainian forces claimed they had landed a direct hit on the regional headquarters of the Wagner Group in the east of the country. You may have heard of them before. The Wagner Group is a Russian private military company that is believed to have been organized back in 2014 by a Chechen war veteran close to Vladimir Putin. The shadowy gang of mercenaries were thought to be the little green men who popped up during the annexation of Crimea. Wearing innocuous fatigues with no identifying military insignia, the Ukrainians and the wider world watching were initially unable to identify these masked men who were doing Vladimir Putin's bidding in Crimea. In 2018, three Russian journalists were then murdered in the Central African Republic, days after flying into the war-torn country. Their editors say they were on assignment to investigate the mercenary group Wagner, why they were in the CAR and what they were doing there. The Mercs have also popped up in Syria, Libya and other countries. Who exactly are they? Are they essentially Putin's private army? And how should the world respond? We sat down with an expert panel to find out more. Well, I am delighted to welcome with me an expert panel for us to talk about Wagner and about private military companies. Uh, we have with us today Yelena Aparach, a consultant and expert from the United Nations Human Rights Council Working Group on the Use of Mercenaries. And we have also Philip Vasilevsky, former CIA paramilitary case officer and veteran, now a Templeton Fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. We have, of course, my regular co-host, Sir Richard Dearlove, uh, with us today. Welcome to all of our guests. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now, I want to start off with, for our listeners, PMCs and PSCs, private military companies and private security companies. They've been in the headlines a lot recently because of the increasing prominence of the Wagner Group on the ground in Ukraine, but they have been around for a long time. They're essentially private contractors and they can include paramilitary contractors who will be deployed either instead of or alongside conventional armed forces in the field. And the difference between the two is that private companies are not subject to the same scrutiny uh, and often the same rules that national armies are. They're a lot less accountable, but they're also a lot more flexible, they're cheaper, and often they're a lot more capable than regular militaries. Yelena, you've been working on mercenaries for quite a few years now. You've um, you've studied, uh, you've not only studied them and their use in active conflict zones around the world, but you've also drafted legal complaints um, involved with uh, mercenaries and alleged war crimes, not just with the UN, but also with Médecins Sans Frontières. Uh, briefly, give us an account of the work that you do so that we can get a grasp, first of all, how international bodies like the UN and other monitoring groups uh, are tackling accountability of these murky organisations such as Wagner. Yes, thank you, Julia. So we are part of the special procedures under the Human Rights Council, as you as you well said, with the UN human rights system. 
and we have the mandate to monitor um, the role and, and the activity of mercenaries, mercenary-related actors, and private military and security companies. We have also studied the role of foreign fighters to see how this phenomenon, which is rather recent, would fit within the mercenary definition. And we uh, presented the report to the UN, the, finding the differences and common elements between foreign fighters and mercenaries. Uh, but there are, for example, elements that are quite different, with, like ideology and common elements, which would be uh, for example, financial gain. But that's on a case-by-case basis. Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting that you mention um, foreign foreign fighters, uh, because while we're going to focus this discussion uh, on Russia and its use of the Wagner Group, um, it should said that uh, it should be said that other countries uh, use PMCs, uh, Turkey and Armenia. Uh, are reportedly using Syrian mercenaries on the ground in Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, the UAE has reportedly recruited Sudanese mercenaries in Yemen. Uh, Iran um, has recruited Afghans to fight in Syria. Um, and so while you say it, it's, it's a recent ph- phenomenon, there's, there's a lot of interesting questions about what constitutes the use of PMCs abroad. Um, let's first of all get into this group called Wagner. Uh, it, and it was it was started by a former GRU colonel uh, and Spetsnaz commander called Dmitry Utkin, and he is reported to have founded Wagner and gave the group its name, which was his former call sign. Uh, and also, it was uh, Richard Wagner was of course the composer admired by Adolf Hitler. Um, the the Wagner group they were first believed to have been deployed during the annexation of Crimea back in 2014. It, it's mercs are thought to be some of those little green men um, who were photographed uh, uh, in Crimea and eastern Ukraine. Um, and uh, the current uh, financier or, or head, head of Wagner is believed to be a man called Yevgeny Prigozhin. Uh, Philip, talk to us about the founding of Wagner, why did they spring up in 2014? Uh, and tell us a bit more about your understanding of the man who now finances and runs the group. Uh, the man you're talking about who finances and overall owns the group, although he continues to deny this, uh, is Yevgeny Prigozhin, who's a close associate of Vladimir Putin, the Russian president. Uh, Prigozhin continues to deny any association with Wagner, although just most recently European Union courts uh, have over you know have overturned his appeal of recent EU sanctions against Wagner himself for their activities, saying that there is a clear link between him and the companies. Uh, also, in um, 2017, the United States Department of Treasury uh, sanctioned Wagner and Prigozhin and Utkin, and uh, in its sanctions of uh, Wagner, it called Wagner a proxy arm of Soviet military intelligence. So there are clear ties between the group and the, uh, the Russian state. As a matter of fact, the group, as is we know, uh, based on uh, the construct of the Russian government, could not exist uh, without the support and without the aid of the Russian government. And it works for the Russian government both as a tool of statecraft, but also as a tool of private gain. Um, as a tool of covert statecraft, it provides some, a very limited amount of deniability these days, maybe more 
in 2014-2015 to intervene in actions where the Russian government wished to have some influence, say in Libya or later on in Mozambique. This would be in some ways kind of normal security assistance and in Soviet days the, uh, Moscow had a quite a close relationship with both countries. However, as we have seen recently over the past several years, this has continued, uh, the use of these, this group has continued spread throughout Africa in Mali, the Central African Republic, Sudan. And what is uh, interesting about all of these relationships is that these are countries with gold and diamond reserves. And recent reporting in the press uh, lays out of how Wagner is intricately, intimately, excuse me, uh, involved in gold smuggling from these African countries into, the, uh, into Russia uh, in avoidance of international sanctions. So here is the private part, as well as the statecraft part that Wagner plays uh, in uh, Soviet foreign policy, as well as the personal criminal organization uh, that is uh, um, around the Kremlin as well. You've uh, hit upon a bunch of talking points I want us uh, to cover over the course of this discussion. But first of all, let's just let's just talk a little bit more about uh, about the group itself. Who are the kinds of people uh, who are Wagner recruits? I think it's it's clear that the use of private military contractors or soldiers for hire um, are very beneficial for the Kremlin. You've mentioned that there is some deniability, a lot less now that they have been uh, increasingly reported on. Uh, but there are other advantages of using them as well. They, uh, they're, they're cheaper tactical units that don't require quite as much training as, as soldiers. Uh, many of them are veterans and come fully trained. And uh, and and they also uh, don't require any of the state benefits, I expect, such as pensions uh, that a traditional army does. They're essentially pay-as-you-go freelancers. Um, they can also be used to hide personnel losses from the Russian public. Their, their deaths are not counted in the official uh, Ministry of Defence report of how many servicemen have died uh, whilst uh, serving on the field or how many have been injured. Um, so what kind of people uh, make up the Wagner group? What kinds of, of people are recruited uh, to be mercenaries, Philip? At the beginning, Wagner mainly recruited from, as you mentioned, uh, from veterans of the Russian army, especially those who had served in Chechnya in either of the two wars in Chechnya, uh, or had uh, a serious uh, police experience, especially in the Oman or other uh, Spetsnaz groups of the Russian Ministry of Internal Affairs. As time has gone on, uh, military experience has been less necessary as much as just the willingness to deploy because of the need for numbers for the various missions that Wagner has uh, been engaged in, uh, starting with Syria and then moving on to a number of countries as we listed uh, in Africa. And you are absolutely correct that they are uh, that one of the elements that makes them uh, attractive uh, to Moscow is some degree of deniability. But what's most attractive to them is a total degree of expendability. They do not have to care at all about um, the losses of these uh, soldiers. Uh, even though they're promised insurance benefits, uh, there have been open source reportings uh, for those who were killed in Deir ez-Zor in Syria. 
of their families never even receiving any benefits. So these are, you know, there's weapons called fire and forget. Well, Wagner is a fire and forget weapon uh, for Moscow and for the Kremlin. And this is one of its uh, chief advantages uh, for using these sorts of troops. So again, their background is mainly uh, military or militarized police units, uh, special operations uh, in the Roskvardia. And this is where it takes the majority of its recruits in the past, although we are also seeing from open source reporting that for Wagner units that are being raised to fight in Ukraine, even this is not totally necessary as they are trolling the jails of Russia uh, to try and find enough people to fill their ranks for the fight in Ukraine. Hiring out of jails, uh, trying to um, open their doors to people who do not necessarily have military experience, that suggests that they have encountered heavy losses in recent years. If we're speaking about the uh, the Russian-Ukrainian war, the Russian uh, armed forces writ large, as we know, have sustained heavy losses and are trying through all sorts of, uh, of means uh, to recruit enough personnel uh, to serve on the front lines. Um, as a matter of fact, Wagner has actually brought back a number of its mercenaries from these African countries to serve in Ukraine. Not totally, though. They have not evacuated uh, their footholds from any African country that, that I'm aware of uh, from open source reporting. So they've still kept uh, a presence there, uh, but they've had to take those people who they have and send them to Ukraine. Um, so this shows also the limits of just how many people Wagner can find uh, to fill its ranks, because there are not that many people who are willing to go overseas, even at the, um, even at the salaries being offered. Uh, to fight in these wars, uh, where quite frankly, their chance of survival of being wounded, medical care uh, in the case of uh, sustaining wounds is quite limited, and their chances of getting evacuated back to Russia are also quite limited. It's, uh, it's, a, high ga- it's a high game, but also a high-risk business. Although I should note, again, talking about the uh, Russian government connection with Wagner, those Wagner mercenaries who were wounded in the Battle of Deir Zor in Syria were evacuated back to Russia on Russian military aircraft and were treated in Russian military hospitals. Uh, a benefit I don't think is allotted to uh, most most uh, tourists uh, who get injured overseas. R- Richard, um, uh, well, F- Philip mentioned that recently um, the Russians have struggled to recruit numbers uh, to pad out the army given their heavy losses uh, in Ukraine. The BBC this weekend reported that there was a renewed effort to recruit new trainees in the army. Uh, and they interviewed a, a mother of a new recruit who was complaining that her son signed up and was given very little training uh, before being immediately dispatched to the front lines in Ukraine where he died shortly after his deployment. Uh, Richard, Philip mentioned Deris in and and Syria. And that was this incident back in 2018, where Wagner operatives and US forces came face to face for the very first time uh, on the ground. There was uh, a several hour firefight between hundreds of Syrian government troops and Wagner operatives uh, who were approaching and then attacking US uh, and Syrian Kurdish Arab forces next to a Conoco gas plant in eastern Syria, in the eastern province of Deir ez-Zor, bordering Iraq. Uh, the, the U.S. forces and, and the Kurdish uh, YPG units were there to fight ISIS militants. Now, according to the New York Times, um, American military officials 
had called their Russian counterparts and urged them to stop the attack. And when that failed, US warplanes essentially carpet bombed their positions, uh, leading to dozens of Russian deaths and a couple hundred uh, Syrian government regime soldiers to, to be killed. And, and that incident caused a lot of anger among Wagner's senior leadership and their forces. Uh, Wagner operatives were deployed in eastern Syria, across Syria, to support the Syrian Arab regime. And part of what they were doing there was to seize and protect oil reserves and plants on behalf of the Assad government. And in return, they were to receive a percentage of the installation's profits. Now, I want to ask you, because I think it's important to note that PMCs such as Wagner, they are not just soldiers for hire. They also serve a variety uh, of, of uses. They do logistics, they do other sorts of things. Um, and they uh, they also uh, re- receive payment in, in other ways other than their contracts with various governments, such as receiving a percentage of, the in- of, of uh, oil field profits. Um, talk to us about uh, about that incident in Syria where the US forces came head to head with the Wagner operatives. Uh, and what kind of an issue uh, does it present Western governments, the fact that there are these mercenaries uh, on, on the field uh, who the US cannot communicate with the Russian government, uh, at least in official channels, um, over such as they did to call off the attack when that failed? Well, I think even in crises, you know, there are channels which you can use to convey messages. Um, It's a deniable, this organization is a deniable extension of the GRU. Um, And it suits the Russians to have a degree of deniability. And of course, we all know that the link with the GRU is probably a close one. But on the other hand, you know, it 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 it's malleable the the whole concept is malleable so the russians can say one thing they can say another thing and uh, i mean i think this you know the 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 incident you quote in syria is probably quite a severe miscalculation on the russians part um but uh, i mean what fascinates me about the wagner group is the extent to which they have been used with clear, you know, political purpose in a number of areas where the Russians don't want to be upfront about their involvement, but on the other hand, their involvement is geopolitically important to the Russian government. So the examples that you quote are Syria, um, Libya, where, you know, they've been fighting uh, to support Haftar, uh, and obviously the Ukraine dimension adds a much more contemporary and crucially important note. But I think there's no question that, you know, what we're seeing is the Russian government at some point having sat down, or the GIU leadership having sat down and said, you know, what we need is a military organization which is not a Spetsna, isn't is something else. So what are we going to create? And this is clearly what they've created. And uh, it's serving a clear purpose. I was also fascinated by what Philip said about um, gold and access to gold. I'm sure Philip will recall the whole issue in Africa of blood diamonds. I mean, we've been around this circuit before in another fashion. Um, Okay, the blood diamonds issue was not specifically exploited by the Russians, but it was exploited by other mercenary groups 
who were fighting on behalf of various corrupt um, African governments who were very keen to get these diamonds uh, into the commercial market and gain personal profit. So, I mean, this is a very murky and complex area. And I think actually at the moment, because of what's happening geopolitically, we need to take Wagner's interventions very, very seriously and, um, you know, regard them really as proxy GIU. There's, for me, it's a pretty straightforward issue. And I'm sure Philip, Philip and I probably, given our backgrounds, would recognise what we're talking about. Yeah, here. I sort of don't really know the difference between proxy forces and and PMCs, um, other than perhaps a difference in, in ideology. Uh, Yelena, both Richard and Philip talked about uh, obscurity and deniability. And given that incident in Syria where US forces were coming under attack from a blend of Syrian regime forces and Russian forces, and they phoned up the Kremlin and they said, call off the attack, you're attacking US personnel. And the Kremlin said, don't know, don't know what you're talking about. What, how difficult is it, the fact that the Russian government, uh, at least public, publicly, will say they have nothing to do with Wagner, uh, even if we know that's not the case. Uh, and what does that mean for bodies like your UN working group? Who do you take your complaints to? Do you talk to the Russians about mercenaries and about Wagner? And what do they say to you uh, when you try to engage with them on their use of mercenaries? Yes, well, uh, you're absolutely right. The, the issue of transparency is a very big concern of us. And the other concern is actually the, the legal statute of this entity. Um, for example, a lot of journalists or a lot of media would uh, refer to Wagner as PMC, as a private military and security company, which we believe is not yet. We believe it's an entity that does not really have any legal existence. And therefore, and to come back to what Philip and Richard have been saying, uh, do need uh, legal entities like other corporations, whether registered locally or in Russia, to uh, conduct their financial transactions and, and other uh, financial economic uh, activities that has to be legally conducted. Um, when we uh, look into the situation, uh, and again, we don't look just Wagner, we look also mercenaries and we, we look also private military and security companies. But in the context of Wagner, we started to look uh, of the different contexts since May 2018, when we had this first case of a journalist who was a Russian journalist who was investigating the, the role of Wagner in Syria, and then he accidentally fell off the balcony, uh, we addressed the allegation letter to the Russian Federation. So under our mandate, we can uh, address what we call allegation letters, which is the, the term for communication system under the, the UN uh, special procedures, which means that we can send the allegations that we receive to states and to the non-state actors, which is very important uh, given that the international um, uh, legal frameworks is set to, to, to only uh, address the states. So we can address non-state actors. We have identified sufficient links between Wagner and the Russian Federation, and we have consistently been in different contexts, such as Libya, such as uh, um, Central African Republic, such as the Russian case, uh, recently in December 2021, again with the Russian case uh, in relation to the Wagner in Syria, uh, we do address our allegation letters 
to the Russian Federation, asking them clarification about the role of Wagner, their legal statute, their connection with the state. So our allegation letters are what the name says, it's the allegation letters. We are not a tribunal, we do not decide, we simply engage in dialogue with the state. And do you engage in, do they engage in a dialogue? What do they say to you when, when you present them with those complaints? So the Russian responses are very uh, clear. Uh, there is a prohibition under Russian criminal code of use of mercenaries, of private military and security companies. We have verified this is, this is exact, this is true. Um, and they deny consistently the, the existence of the Wagner Group. However, the fact that the Wagner does have link with legal entities, it allows us to engage in dialogue with those legal entities if and when we find the contact of those entities. So, for example, in the context of Central African Republic in March 2021, we have uh, sent allegation letter to the to the Republic of uh, to the government of the Central African Republic because it was on the territory of that country that it happened. So the information that we have received, that there was a local company called Loba Invest, that is a company registered under Central African law, and that has the, the concessions on the gold and diamond to operate in, in Central African Republic. The Seva Security Company, which provides private security in Central African Republic, and the Wagner Group does not have legal existence. And so what's going through those uh, entities? In Syria, we have identified another company that was also linked to, to, to Wagner. So it becomes now a sort of a pattern that the Wagner does need legal uh, companies uh, to conduct their operations for some elements of their operations, financial transactions or um, administration or whatever. So, but at the same time, they do not exist, which gives them uh, the space to operate. Right. I, F Philip, Yelena mentioned that running a mercenary army is, is actually uh, against the Russian constitution, but they use various loopholes uh, to bypass those laws. Um, and the idea that they don't exist on paper, that they are not, they have no registration, at least not any that's publicly known. Uh, we recently interviewed uh, Bill Browder, and he mentioned that some of his earlier work in tracking down Russian criminals was actually quite easy because the Russians are notoriously bureaucratic, he said. He said they write down absolutely everything. They make notes of all of their transactions, even ones that they probably shouldn't have. Uh, so how does that work? How do you run a company that has tens of thousands of employees like Wagner? And if you're a, a bureaucratic Russian organization, uh, how does it work that it's not registered anywhere or that it is not sort of, it's not legally in existence? That's not possible, surely. I mean, can you run a company that big uh, with no documentation? Well, they obviously do and they lie. We should not come as a surprise to anyone on this podcast or anyone watching it. Um, and you are right. They are very bureaucratic, um, almost like the Nazis were. Uh, in their crimes of noting everything down, which does not work well for them in many respects. Um, if you are going to be running a covert operation, you are going to want to only have not only some sort of deniability, uh, but also be kind of good at it. And as we've seen now with Wagner directly participating in uh, land combat in Ukraine, there should be once and for all no doubt whatsoever that Wagner is part and parcel an arm of the Russian government in some way. 
However, this can work to our advantage, the fact that, and yes, the Russian constitution uh, prohibits uh, private military companies or mercenaries of any kind, and it continues. Uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov just a few uh, weeks ago, again, denied any connection between the Russian government and Wagner. Uh, this is why um, a colleague of mine from the National Security Council, Jim Petrill, and I recently published in Lawfare an article calling for the U.S. Secretary of State to designate Wagner as a foreign terrorist organization under the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act that's in place in the United States. Uh, this is the same designation as ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and other terrorist groups have, uh, have uh, been designated under. Now, I mentioned earlier that Wagner had been designated by the Department of Treasury uh, for its illegal activities under a separate statute. But if the Secretary of State was to find that Wagner is a foreign terrorist organization, and the requirements are rather simple, it has to be A, a foreign entity, B, engage in terrorist activity, and C, the terrorist activity has to threaten the security of the United States or its nationals. Uh, then this allows legally uh, the United States to use two tools that would be very effective in containing Wagner. And one is material support criminal sanctions for anyone knowingly providing support to Wagner and allowing U.S. citizens to sue both Wagner and any person or entity who provides substantial support to Wagner for civil, rem civil remedies if they're victims of Wagner terrorist activities. Now, what does this mean in, um, in reality? Uh, Bellingcat and other organizations, which do a great job in finding the names, passport numbers, and other information of uh, people involved in uh, mercenary activities of the Russians in Syria, in Africa, and that. This information could then be given to airlines to forbid their travel, for tra travel of, of Wagner mercenaries. Uh, it could also uh, bring legal action uh, against them uh, in international courts. It could also any company that provides them. Remember, this is a large organization. Logistics is key. You have to ship these weapons overseas. You've got to ship uh, supplies, support. Um, any shipping company, airline company, uh, private company that would provide material support to the Wagner company, if it was designated as a foreign terrorist organization, could then be liable to U.S. criminal sanctions. And this would, we believe, would put a crimp into their activities and would be extremely discouraging from any company providing them support, as well as other countries wishing to hire them. I think it's very interesting uh, you pointing out that recent announcement of the prescription of the group. And, and one very obvious sort of question that that begs is, you know, why, why, why has the Interpol red notice been rescinded for Yevgeny Prigozhin, who is reportedly able to travel quite freely uh, throughout the world? And maybe this prescription um, of the organization may, uh, may change things. Um, but before we turn to Africa, I just want to j just turn to Ukraine and what Wagner are are doing there. And it is interesting because Ukraine is allegedly where Wagner uh, was first deployed at the start of their inception. Um, because there are a few interesting things that happened recently. The Ukrainian um, Ukrainian artillery is said to have struck their regional headquarters uh, of the Wagner group uh, in a town called Popasna, uh, which is in Luhansk in a Russian-occupied eastern Ukraine. And that was just, just over a week ago. Uh, and also three Wagner mercenaries are alleged by Ukraine Ukrainian 
prosecutors to have committed war crimes, including murder and torture, uh, in a village near Kiev in April. That was when Russian forces were withdrawing uh, from Kiev earlier in the spring. And, and uh, German intelligence also suspects that Wagner operatives were behind, uh, were involved in the killing of civilians in Butcher during that same withdrawal. Now, Richard, what did you make of those reports earlier in the war that apparently Wagner operatives were sent to Kiev to carry out an assassination against Vladimir Zelensky? Do you think they ever got close? Well, I think that... Uh, Probably the Ukrainians play the Russians at their own game. I mean, in terms of what I understand, is Ukrainian intelligence service were quite clever uh, in, as it were, suckering the Russians into believing that they could buy their way into Kiev and that they could buy local governments and that the people who were supposedly sympathizers uh, to the Russian position would be massively rewarded after the event. And I think the Russians thought they were going to drive down the road, uh, that they had bought the local administration, that the administration officials were going to get given tens of thousands of dollars for helping the Russians. The Russians would roll over the Ukrainian government and that part of that would be sending in a group like Wagner to go in and assassinate the uh, sort of ministers of the, the being deposed government and replace them very quickly. Of course, it, it just didn't happen like that because, you know, the Ukrainians were cleverer. Uh, they put up fierce resistance. Everything went badly wrong. It was catastrophic. Philip, I just want to turn to, to Africa because Wagner reportedly have around 5,000 operatives deployed on the African continent, which is almost, uh, I'm told, almost as much as the US deployment of around 6,000 troops and support personnel uh, on on the African continent as well. Wagner are, are in Mali, they're in the Central African Republic, and they're in Sudan, as, as you've mentioned. Um, the Wall Street Journal reported that Russia's new reliance on Wagner stems in part from the fact that elite Russian units that would otherwise carry out such missions have been battered near Kiev because of Moscow's miscalculations in the earlier weeks of the war, as Richard was saying. Um, and a former deputy uh, chief of Ukraine's SBU uh, told the Wall Street Journal that the Russian Federation has a huge problem with motivated units. The only motivation that remains is money. They have nobody left for storming and breakthroughs, and Wagner is their only combat unit that does it without asking any questions, even if it takes losses of 10 to 15% uh, after every mission. Now, on, on their use in Africa, uh, they have been contracted by the Malian government after they kicked out French forces earlier this year. Mali is the fourth biggest gold exporter in the world, and they also have manganese and oil and uranium and lithium, all kinds of important things. Uh, Sudan, Sudan is uh, also hugely resource rich. And there is, of course, the, there, there was that peaceful democratic uh, transition after they ousted Bashir uh, several years ago, who was a longtime dictator. Uh, in Sudan. And during his 30-year tenure, he worked with the Russians, uh, allegedly suppressing a lot of the protests that eventually deposed him. Now, Sudan, uh, as I mentioned, has a lot of lucrative sectors such as oil, natural gas, agriculture and gold. Talk to us a bit about why Wagner is in Africa and how exactly it works. How does a private military company 
take advantage of resources in Africa in exchange for carrying out contracts there? Wagner's in it for the money, which means Moscow's in it for the money. As I mentioned earlier, yes, there are some statecraft goals going back to Soviet times where there was relations between Moscow and Libya, Moscow and Mozambique, uh, which are continued. If this was simply a matter of uniformed officers going to a foreign country to provide uh, their expertise, military expertise and training, this is security assistance. This is done by countries throughout the world, and certainly most major parties, countries. Uh, and there's nothing really uh, wrong um, or unusual about this. Where we get into what we're all here about talking about Wagner is, is two things. One is the consistent violations of the law of armed conflict uh, conducted by Wagner to the extent, especially uh, by their, um, uh, their murders of civilians and other protected persons, that it really rises in um, what we've suggested to the level of terrorism is one of the things. The other thing, as I mentioned, is they're for the money. And they basically have a devil's deal with several African governments serving in part as a Praetorian Guard and in exchange are able to loot the natural resources of the country. And this is another key here of why, to answer your question, of why are they, in, they are in Africa. Look at the countries that they're in Africa. Um, Mali, as you mentioned, Goal. Central African Republic, and Sudan. Let's take a look at the last two real quickly here. Um, I mentioned the CNN report of the gold smuggling from Sudan. Human Rights Watch and other organizations have also done excellent reporting on recent Wagner atrocities in the gold mining regions in the Central African Republic. Basically, under the guise of an anti-guerrilla operation, they've moved in, taken over the areas, the gold mining areas, in the Central African Republic. There are credible, numerous credible reports of them massacring the gold miners and then kidnapping children, young teens, to work in those gold mines, open pit gold mines or diamond mines. We know also that there is a gold processing plant that had been run, been run by a subsidiary of one of Prigozhin's companies. The company is called Moreau Gold in Sudan where the Russians also have been receiving the gold from the gold mining regions of Sudan, processing it, and then being sent uh, to Moscow, hidden on flights. Uh, not, their cargo is not being declared as gold. Uh, shipments, uh, as much as CNN report estimates in this year alone, $1.9 billion worth of gold going from the Sudan. This is gold probably mined both in Sudan and then uh, also in the Central African Republic, brought into this processing plant, refined, makes it untraceable. Uh, it's bulky, but it allows you to evade international sanctions, and then sent to Russia uh, via Latakia uh, airfield in Syria on Russian military aircraft. That is the part of the Wagner operation. That is a Wagner operative who's uh, supervising both security at the gold processing plant and we know that, like I said, Moreau Gold was a subsidiary of one of Prigozhin's companies. Um, recently, uh, in order to obscure this trail, this gold scene, uh, the Russians tried to have a Syrian company called Al-Salag stood up and take over uh, the, um, uh, the gold, uh, Moreau Gold uh, account. 
Now, you mentioned earlier about the bureaucracy of some of these organizations. Well, CNN in its, its, its uh, thorough report noticed that the uh, liabilities noticed by Moreau Gold were exactly the same as noticed in Al-Slag, because when you transfer assets between a company, you also have to transfer all of the liabilities. Now, I don't know why they thought they had to transfer all, exactly the same liabilities, but this shows exactly that Moreau Gold and Al-Slag basically are still the same part of the gold smuggling operation uh, being run by Wagner. And this is uh, one of the reasons also why designating Wagner as a foreign terrorist organization could have an impact on this, because then if that was done, then the companies like Olsalag, its members, and those who support it, including Sudanese government officials, could be liable to criminal sanctions for supporting a foreign terrorist organization gold smuggling operation. But to get back to your original question, why are they there? Partly in uh, reasons for statecraft, but mostly for the money. And this is a large part of how the money is done by these illegal gold smuggling operations from the Central African Republic, Sudan, and now we see in Mali and uh, other places. Uh, Yelena, Philip, thank you so much uh, for joining us. And Richard, it's great for you. Uh, great to have you on as always. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Philip. Thank you, Yelena. Nice to meet you, Philip and Yelena. That brings us to the end of this week's episode of One Decision. If you enjoyed this podcast, do subscribe to us so you never miss an episode. We drop new podcasts every Thursday. From me and the team, see you next time.